one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 335 for the week of Sunday, August 14th, 2011. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Uh, batteries to power, turbines to speed. We're ready here, Sawyer. Preston Miko. <laughs> and welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. Here, present, accounted for, as far as you know. <laughs> no, we already talked about Juno. <laughs> last week. But I'm bummed. Anyway, let's get things started here on our acronym-filled show. Beginning with the AMS, the Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer, which was recently delivered to the International Space Station on STS-134 by the Space Shuttle Endeavor. AMS is an experiment on board, and... This is interesting that we discovered is one of its control centers will be located in a more unique location. Right, Gene? Yeah, I'm looking at um, the uh, uh, Taiwan Headlines website, which is taiwanheadlines.gov.tw. And uh, according to them here, uh, Taiwan will host the second and Asia's first ground control center. Uh, for the Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer by June 2012. Um, obviously, uh, AMS is a uh, U.S. Department of Energy experiment that was launched on Space Shuttle Endeavor um, on STS-134, its final flight. So uh, preparations are still underway, but the, apparently the goal is to set up the uh, Payload Operations and Control Center in Taiwan by June of next year or earlier, um, according to uh, to Taiwan. So uh, the uh, this kind of sort of drives home the aspect that this indeed is an international endeavor, no pun intended, and that the ISS is is still an, an international facility and will continue to play a, a role in, uh, in, an, in, in science uh, worldwide. So this is kind of exciting. It's also good to see, too, that, that there's a backup facility somewhere other than here in, in the U.S. So um, in case something does go wrong here, it would shift to Taiwan and, and vice versa. So um, good news all the way around, I think. It, 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 gets, it also gets Taiwan involved um, in uh, in the uh, project in a big way, I'm wondering what the Chinese are going to say about this. Uh, but it uh, so far it's uh, it, it's looking good for uh, June 2012. I'm going to guess that it's probably something that'll be welcomed by the uh, collaboration as a whole because basically it involves one of the you know another another member uh, contributing some funds and some uh, you know show us the money into into operations and looking at at some of how things are currently running it's another bucket of acronyms uh, and I'm gonna do a little data flow uh, talk through real quickly but uh, data from AMS comes down to Marshall Space Flight Center then it's transferred to the uh, POC the POCC the payload operations control center which is at CERN and from there, it is also, and they, they handle commands to the AMS, and they do online data monitoring. Then there's a science operations center, the SOC, which is at CERN, which their purpose is with offline data reconstruction. They're the ones that handle requests for, uh, for data to, to some extent from, from outside. But there's another regional site 
that is connected to the sock called the IGSDS, the Italian Ground Support Segment Data Storage. And it's located in Bologna, Italy. And they have a master copy of the whole AMS2 data sample. They have raw frames, reconstructed simulated data, and the data volume that they're storing in Italy amounts to about 150 terabyte a year. Uh, that IGSDS acts as a distribution center and it allows faster data access by AMS collaborators. Plus, it avoids interfering with SOC activities. So, they got a pretty good system set up. But one thing they don't have is, at least from, from what I see on the AMS02.org site, is I don't see redundancy particularly. Uh, I imagine there's a limited amount of it, but refresh my memory. Uh, back. I'm trying to remember how long ago it was, and I've lost track of time, but the uh, the terrible earthquake and the tsunamis that hit Japan, didn't that take a uh, operations center offline at, with JAXA that was part of yes. ISS operations? Yes, it did. It took the entire center offline. Um, and that, and it that certainly that, that points to how important it is to have a backup, and in some cases a backup to a backup, which they did with how uh, with how – Part of their functions were transferred to the U.S., I believe, for, for JAXA's ISS business. That's correct. I think JAXA had uh, representatives at uh, um, at the Johnson Space Flight Center uh, working there and their end of their uh, their end of the mission there. So, so indeed, it does drive home the fact that you need a backup facility and possibly, as you pointed out, Mark, a backup to a backup. So, um, again, this is this is this is all this is really all around a uh, great news for for uh, anybody's working who is working on AMS. And and of course, it's a plan. It's something that has a lot of details to be worked out and has to be approved and agreed upon. I would I would bet by the by the uh, by the member countries that are part of this. Yeah, but it, it, to me, the reading reading the article to me, it, it it looks like it's a done deal that this is going to happen. They're going to take take the reins um, on uh, around around uh, June of uh, June of next year, and would be be able to be in a position to support AMS and AMS data flow. What I'm really concerned with just a little bit is is the political side of the thing with 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 China and Taiwan, the way things are, and if it's going to be viewed basically putting a stick in their cage or, or whatever. So um, we'll just have to see. But uh, all in all, I think it's a good – I think it's good news for, for anybody dealing with uh, with AMS right now that indeed it's going to have a, a, another set of hands taking a look at, at the data flow and making sure that uh, uh, all the data is collected and, and understood. So again, it's, I think it's a win. <laughs> Since we're talking about AMS2 and uh, eagerly awaiting announcement of some of the groundbreaking discoveries that we're anticipating from them, well, in the meantime, uh, it has been announced in a astrophysical journal letters that theoretical work predicting that the Earth's magnetic field could trap antimatter has proven to be true. Uh, this was detected by the PAMELA satellite, which is an acronym for another acronym, sorry about that, but Payload for Antimatter Exploration and Light Nuclei Astrophysics. It was launched in 2006 to study the high energy particles from the sun and beyond our solar system. And it has determined that in uh, sandwiched between the inner and outer Van Allen belts is an antimatter belt. And they have seen evidence of this, and it was discussed in those astrophysical journal letters that I mentioned. That is too cool. <laughs> they they say it's analogous to the uh, again Van Allen belts, and uh, that it holds the they hold the antiprotons in place at least until they encounter normal matter of atmosphere when they annihilate in a flashlight. And uh, normal matter outweighs antiprotons by thousands to one, but Band is the most abundant source of antiprotons near the Earth. So interesting. Yeah. Wow. Looking forward to looking forward to understanding and learning a little bit more about these things. Yeah. Thanks, Mark. That was really cool. And now back to planet Earth. And that was your dose of unscheduled science. <laughs>
brought to you by the letters AMS. I think we're, we're leaving planet Earth and going to Mars, correct, Sawyer? I think that's the perfect place to leave to right now. Better pack your bags and head on out, because we're taking a trip to the red planet Mars. And in particular, we're talking about one of the MERs, the Mars Exploration Rover's Opportunity, which successfully made it to the rim of Endeavor Crater. Right, Gene? That's correct. In fact, uh, Opportunity uh, just went ahead and stopped off at a... Uh, a point called uh, called Spirit Point uh, on on Endeavor Crater's rim there, um, as uh, you sort of would surmise that Spirit Point is named after the other uh, Mars exploration rover Spirit, which went offline a while back ago. Um, but uh, this marks a this this marks something really really big. Um, to quote uh, John Callis, uh, Mars Exploration Rover Project man- Manager, quote, our, our arrival at this destination, Endeavor Crater, is a reminder that these rovers have continued far beyond their original three-month mission. Um, and I'm, gonna, I'm reading from a uh, MSNBC report. Um, I'm trying to get the, the, the byline on the date here, which is uh, uh, August 10th. The, uh, the milestone brings a renewed sense of adventure to a mission that wowed the public with color portraits of the landscape and the unmistakable geologic discoveries of a warm and wetter past on Mars. Uh, so, um, again, this is a huge, huge deal. It means that the, that opportunity is still chugging along, still getting some really good science. It will go ahead and dig around Endeavor Crater after leaving its its previous destination, Victoria Crater, behind. And I thought it was kind of neat that they actually named it a a, uh, a piece of uh, geography after uh, the uh, the fallen Spirit rover. That was kind of a, a neat tip of the hat. But uh, we'll brace ourselves and see what uh, what uh, opportunity uh, awaits the rover opportunity to go ahead and uh, study the uh, study Endeavor Crater. We'll have to see what uh, what is what's going on over there. Now, while we're talking about Mars a little bit and Mars rovers, why don't we talk a little bit about the next Mars rover to launch around this Thanksgiving, the Mars Science Laboratory (MSL), better known as Curiosity. Yeah, again, um, this Curiosity is a really interesting piece of hardware first this thing is about the size of a of a, of a mini cooper um it is about it um about uh, it cost about 2.5 billion dollars to to build according to an article i'm looking at here that was written by todd, todd halverson uh from florida today the article is dated august 13th um it is scheduled to launch um i believe the Launch window, and somebody forgive me here, I think it opens on November 25th and runs until, oh, good Lord, I'm thinking December, uh, I'm somewhere mid-December, I'm, I'm going to say December 18th, that's 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 the number that, that sits in my head anyway. Um, and uh, this this thing is, is just absolutely impressive. In fact, Sawyer, before... Um, unfortunately, we had to cut something um, loose from from the show, but we're we're going to go ahead and run it here um, about how the uh, the decision was made to uh, uh, set uh, MSL down or Curiosity down in the area that it is going to land in. That, is that right, Sawyer? Indeed, this was from episode three thirty two that unfortunately, because of time, had to be cut out, where we discuss the announcement of that time that week when they had announced the landing site, a little bit about our experience when we heard a little discussion about Mars Science Laboratory, as well as talking about the way that it's going to land. So we'll go ahead and we'll play that. Okay then, so continuing along, while we were at the Kennedy Space Center for STS-135, there was a science briefing that was held. Now, all of this will be on a future show, everything in general, but there is one part that we want to focus on in particular, and that is the Mars Science Laboratory, in which they discussed with us possible landing sites. And now they have chosen a landing site, and the landing site is... Gale Crater. Um, Sawyer, you and I were were in... uh 
the the uh, the science briefing that they gave bef- during the uh, the STS-135 launch uh, proceedings, and the uh, we were in there when they were selecting, giving an idea of what they wanted to do and where they wanted to go, and uh, there were there were four selections they were looking at, and I thought this one was was. You know, sorry, you and I were were talking uh, uh, offline a little bit before we started, and we both kind of agreed that this was probably the most scientifically interesting area, but I I kind of thought it was the, also the most riskiest to go ahead and land, um, especially when you're you're dealing with uh, with something that's that's kind of sort of never been proven before the the landing system on the the, the called the sky crane, but. Um, We'll see how it all work, works out. I I think that this is probably if everything works the way um, the way the folks want this to over at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, uh, this is going to be quite a mission and uh, a worthy successor to uh, to both Spirit and to uh, to uh, both Spirit and Opportunity. Although I have a feeling good old Oppie Skull going to be be running uh, running along even while uh, MSL is operating. So it's pretty amazing how they're doing this. The the sky crane system is very interesting how it'll get to the landing site, and once it gets over the landing site, what it'll do is it'll sort of lower it down on a kind of string until it's just about on the ground. And then it'll land on its own accord, on its own wheels, as it cuts the string, and then the sky crane system flies off. And as it does so, it'll actually fly off and crash away from the vehicle, leaving the Mars Science Laboratory or Curiosity on her own, essentially, almost entirely ready to start roving as soon as she lands. And Curiosity's big. I mean, this thing's about the size of a Mini Cooper. So, you know, it, it is it is huge compared to uh, to uh, Spirit and Opportunity, and it, and it's a it's a monster compared to the Sojourner uh, uh, rover, which uh, landed there in in, in the uh, mid '90s. Yeah, we were showing so, a comparison image and. It's unprecedented. Just, I actually have the image here. I'll post it on the website. It's yeah, amazing just the size difference of it. It's spectacular. So but here's to... the amazing thing, though, about this landing site that they chose. The landing site, it's inside a crater. Right. But it's not a perfectly flat crater. Right. Other than that, besides the 96-mile diameter crater, there's basically a giant mountain in the middle couple thousand feet in height trying to figure out the exact height of it yeah and i I recall too uh there were some questions if they were actually going to send curiosity up that mountain and i believe the answer was partially it was not going to go ahead and and climb the whole the whole thing but they were going to go ahead and send try to send it up just just you know just a little bit and to, to see what was going on over there so um, but uh, all in all, uh, it, it's, I'm looking forward to this to this particular uh, mission. This is going to launch, I believe, in late October, just after Thanksgiving. Nope, exactly on Thanksgiving. Oh, really? Okay, even better. 25th of November, I believe, is the launch date. But one thing that I was trying to figure out before, here we go. Now I've got my facts right. Okay. So the crater, which is 96 miles in diameter, 154 kilometers. Right in the middle of it is a three-mile or five-kilometer-high mound, just right in the middle of it. And they're going to try and squeeze it in one of the flat areas there. Now, the amazing thing to look at here is just to compare the landing circle size that they have. The landing area that they're trying to aim for Curiosity is 20 by 25 kilometers. Compare that to the Mars Exploration Rover Spirit and Opportunity, which was 80 by 125 kilometers. Little wow. risky. Yeah, you see, that was my that was my point that I was I was thinking of earlier. Um, I'm because I think Sawyer, if if I'm not wrong, they they may have covered a little bit of this in the in the press conference, but and that's why I my my alarm bells kind of went off on this one. But uh, apparently, again, this is the most interesting site that uh, out of the three and out of the four, I'm sorry that they were looking at. And I kind of wish them well uh, with with all that. Um, I think it's going to work. I think this mission is going to be be quite uh, exciting and a, and a worthy successor to the uh, to the rover Spirit. I hope so. And by the way, during that press conference, you leaned over to me and said, "That's a really small area." 
Yeah. You I actually was, said that to me at the press conference. Yeah, like, I remember yeah. that. Yeah, that is a really small area they're aiming for, and that's why I'm I'm a little I don't know, but um, <laughs> these the, these guys know better than I do. So uh, again, they're I don't know if this is a roll of the dice or, or what, but uh, again, I wish uh, I wish wish the Curiosity team all the best. So remember, that was from a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, still the Sky Crane concept still intrigues me, and I'm I'm really interested to see how that's really really going to work in a couple of years years, but. Uh, um, again, um, MSL is being prepared, uh, I believe, uh, last week sometime. The press was in there um, uh, taking some really, really cool photographs of, uh, of the rover. And again, from uh, what I understand, this, this is a really impressive piece of hardware that we're sending to Mars. And this is a, a, a very good um, mobile laboratory. So it should be kind of fun to find out what this thing actually actually is able to do for us with, with Mars ex- exploration. And uh, I think it's, it's going to be the most capable uh, vanguard that we're going to have. Um, what's really cool is that, you know, with, with opportunity now up there and we have, you know, our, our orbiting spacecraft up there, we're going to Mars every day. There are people going, you know, virtually going to Mars every day, working on the surface or orbiting and taking photographs and so on. So I, I think that's just absolutely incredible that we still have all of these eyes and, and, and we still have a presence on the surface of Mars. And we're going to have a, uh, a far more capable um, uh, presence on the surface of Mars in a couple of years with MSL. So I think it's really exciting. I think it's great, and I can't wait till it's on the surface. No, I can't either. This is going to be an exciting um, – real exciting doesn't even begin to cover it, um, what this thing, thing is going to be. I can't wait. One other thing, too, I've noticed um, that Todd Halverson did end his article in with a rather ominous note is that um, he uh, he's quoting – uh, a member of the MSL team. Getting to Mars is never easy. It, it's not easy to get a spacecraft down to the surface. And he writes here about 60% of Mars landing attempts to date have ended in failure. Close quote. So again, it's it's not an easy place to get to. Um, I still remember uh, reading about. Uh, the infamous great galactic ghoul that everybody thought was surrounding Mars. In fact, uh, there, there was somebody at, at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory back in the 60s when this thing was named. Uh, there, there was an artist rendition of this thing eating spacecraft that would go into orbit around Mars because it was so difficult to get there. Every time we tried, we would just end up in... Ab- absolute failure. I mean, we had a... And we also had a really long string in the... Uh, in the 90s of spacecraft just not getting to Mars. Um, and it wasn't just us. It was the European Space Agency, too, if you remember, with the Beagle spacecraft that uh, didn't quite make it. All right, so while we're talking about spacecraft that will be launched in the near future, one of them is actually not just one spacecraft, but it's a pair of spacecrafts. That's another acronym called GRAIL heading to the moon. GRAIL stands for the Gravity Recovery and Interior Laboratory. It's um, uh, part of uh, NASA's discovery program. Uh, I'm looking at the GRAIL website, which is moon.mit.edu, if anybody's interested. Um, Now, GRAIL is actually uh, not one spacecraft, but two. And I believe, uh, Sawyer, that's scheduled to fly via a Delta booster on um, September 8th, if I'm not mistaken. Um, what uh, what scientists were going to be using GRAL for uh, is to, uh, to study the gravi- get gravity field information about the moon. And uh, uh, so it, 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 it also plans to be a pretty exciting, exciting mission. So if anybody's really interested in learning a little bit more about it, uh, visit moon.mit.edu. And we're hoping to profile Grail on a, on a future show, so uh, stay tuned for that. All right, so we will keep up to date on Grail, which is also has a public outreach camera, so maybe we'll do some public outreach with it too. <laughs> yeah, and uh, lest we forget, the Juno spacecraft also has a uh, public outreach camera on board too, so once it gets into... 
um, orbit around Jupiter, it too will have a you know, it too will have that kind of public outreach camera. So it'll be neat yeah. to, to see what happens with that. That's the difference with that is that Juno will be there in five years. Grail will be there in three to four months. That's right. You know. Um, by the way, do you, you, you know um, now whenever you picture to go into the moon. Um, how long did Apollo take? About three days? Three to four days, yeah. Right. Um, this is going to take about three to four months, a low energy, what's called a low en- energy uh, you know, transit cruise. The reason why is you're flying out there at that kind of speed, you know, and you have to go ahead and slow yourself down. These guys won't have to do that. They'll just go ahead and enter a nice little gentle orbit around the moon they won't have to go ahead and really really expend a lot of energy to slow down to get into orbit so um that's that's probably you know if you don't need to go ahead and you can take your time there's no big rush you know you, you can do that type of thing so alrighty then so let's continue along then to our next topic which is <laughs> we're keeping up with the acronyms here which is an <laughs> Aircraft, actually, that was launched by DARPA. And the spacecraft was scheduled for a flight. And um, there was a little problem about nine minutes in. Can someone explain this flight a little bit more so our listeners can understand what it is and why it's so special, including maybe the fact that its speed was maybe uh, Mach 20? Did somebody (laughs) say, oops? Perhaps. Well, DARPA and the uh, Falcon or the HTV-2, Falcon is an acronym in itself, Force, Application, and Launch from Continental U.S. So think of force application in the military, and it means that they're working on a weapon system. And uh, that makes sense. They want to be able to have an aircraft that can reach around the world in, in 60 minutes. Of course, the tough part of that is that Mach 20 thing, uh, be able to handle temperatures of 3,500 degrees or more. And so they came up with this plan to have these HTV-2s, one of each. Uh, I don't see how they're differentiated, but they refer to them as the first HTV-2 flight and the second HTV-2 flight. The first one uh, had a successful launch separation from its launch vehicle. And uh, some glide flight at, at mock, you know, high mock speeds. And then uh, the flight ended abruptly when the computer's autopilot commanded flight termination. And according to a DARPA spokesman, when the onboard system detects something undesirable, unsafe in its flight behavior, it forces the aircraft into a controlled roll and pitch over to descend directly into the ocean. Uh, Reviews found that on the first one that that's exactly what happened. The second one, which this is now a year and uh, looks like about a year, not quite four months later, from April of 2010 to August of 2011, 11th of August specifically, that uh, this HTV-2 separated successfully and it flew about nine minutes into its planned 30-minute flight and that it purposefully impacted the Pacific along its flight path as a safety precaution. Some analysts think the second failure may be uh, may cause an overhaul of the Falcon program, and uh, sounds like a good idea. And I want to thank uh, Todd Cecilio for the initial heads up on this story because I wasn't aware of it, and it was interesting to read about it and go to DARPA's page and and read and to see what the the flight profile was, but. Basically, I probably described it well enough, but launch separation from the Minotaur 4 launch vehicle, and then it goes into reentry phase where it uh, glides into the Earth's upper atmosphere. They do some uh, some simple maneuvers, apparently pull up, control their glide, control altitude, and, uh, and then eventually it would terminate. And, it, of course, it didn't terminate uh, quite as far along the flight path as they planned. But uh, sounds interesting. And the thing I've got to say is, okay, let's see. The shuttle that is now a something we think about in the past, by and large, was in orbit and 
started reentry at Mach 25 or so and landed uh, pretty nicely, except for the one tragic uh, trouble with Columbia. But uh, flew at high Mach speeds down to a wheel stop on the runway. And uh, seems like they got it down pretty good. And yet, from the DARPA page, Air Force Major Chris Schultz made this statement. He said, here's what we know. He's the uh, program manager, has a Ph.D. in aerospace engineering. We know how to boost the aircraft to near space. We know how to insert the aircraft into atmospheric hypersonic flight. We do not yet know how to achieve the desired control during the aerodynamic phase of flight. It's vexing. I'm confident there's a solution. We have to find it. I think there's several thousand uh, NASA folks, contractors, and uh, and shuttle fans, and, and more than a few of us here on the ground that aren't near as knowledgeable that could point the direction to some some good lessons. Well, then can I quote something else from one of the articles by DARPA Director Regina Dugan? Please. Her reaction to this was, and this is I, I read this the first time a couple days ago, and I kind of laughed. Quote, we'll learn, we'll try again. That's what it takes. Well, that's, you know, th- that's what it takes in spaceflight to begin with. I mean, it's basically just go- saying, oops, we lost a multi-million dollar vehicle because it crashed itself into the ocean prematurely. Yeah. Uh, I'm wondering, too, though, if anybody is asking the X-37B guys about what possibly, you know, what issues they've encountered and maybe there might be a crossfeed because, Mark, you, you made some really good points with the shuttle. Is there any, you know, can you go ahead and take any of that shuttle data and possibly apply it to this problem or possibly even take the X-37B, which also, I will bet, flies at the same, you know, fly, has the same reentry profile that they were trying to mimic with this thing and maybe take some lessons learned from the X-37B and, you know, re-entries and so on and apply it to this so you know they'll figure out what happened but it's it's just amazing to me that the that you that nobody's asking some folks around and i'm i'm kind of worried is or or is this a, a a possibility that that we're building these things in silos again and nobody's talking to each other or or what could be there certainly would be a lot of secrecy involved in a military project yeah, but, you know, it's – I mean, I know the need to know and all that. I've been exposed to all that myself. But um, it, it kind of makes you wonder if – you know, I mean, I know the X-37B is also a different project, and indeed it's a cla- it's most likely a classified project, and so as probably this is as well. But there, there's got to be some overlap somewhere and you know if it's on a need to know basis and all that yeah I'd, I'd probably say this is need to know and maybe you can break down a silo here and figure out um, figure out what's you know how the x-37b re-enters and, and even even if take some shuttle data if you have to and and try to apply it to this problem I'm just hoping that that people are are mindful of things. I mean, I might be looking at this too simplistically because, again, I don't know enough about the project. But you'd you'd kind of think that you know maybe somebody can look at at, at uh, you know other projects and other data and uh, um, apply it to this problem. So I guess we'll have to keep our fingers crossed and hope for the best. It's interesting. A friend of mine made mention of this a, a day or so ago, and and he threw a phenomenally big number out there for cost and. Uh, I, I think he was kind of poking fun and also the, at the foolishness of, of spending incredible sums of money. And I don't see that. What I'm reading in a article out of uh, the Washington Times from November of 2010 says that the uh, – and this was, of course, following the first launch – but the $308 million Falcon HTV-2, and, and it goes on to describe it. So. Uh, you know, apparently, yeah, it's it's a chunk of change, but it's uh, it's it's not uh, not billions and billions, as my friend made it sound. Not that I've got three hundred eight million dollars laying around that I'd want to toss out there for a, for a third attempt, but I think this is probably going to be where they go back to the drawing boards and come up with a new plan. Yeah, I was going to say, can you help a fellow American who's down on his luck? 
Yeah, that would be a couple of us. <laughs> Alrighty then, let's continue onward to the story about the STS, the Space Transportation System. What is with all these acronyms? <laughs> I Houston, I smell a show title. <laughs> well, f- we'll find out. <laughs> anyway... <laughs> Recently, there was a nose-to-nose meeting between the Space Shuttle Discovery and the Space Shuttle Endeavor. As one vehicle was moved into the orbiter processing facility, and the other was moved into the vehicle assembly building for storage. And the two of them came nose-to-nose for a couple hours, staring each other down until one of them finally decided to move. Now, it wasn't like that. What was it like? I wasn't there, unfortunately, but... uh... It it was first. I, I saw a lot of the photographs from from the uh, from the event. This I get. This happened. Uh, I'm trying to see what the byline is. This happened. Uh, the byline here is uh, August 12th, so I'm guessing that that's when this occurred. Um, you had both uh, Endeavor, which is undergoing its its refit for uh, becoming a museum piece over, and, and uh, will be sent to the uh, California Science Museum. And Discovery, which is also undergoing its refit for, uh, again, becoming a museum piece. It will be sent over to the uh, National Air and Space Museum. And uh, it's interest- it was interesting to see both of these vehicles kind of sort of, you know, out there looking at each other without their teeth. I mean, you know, Endeavor has, has received uh, its, you know, the, uh, the RCS system has been removed. I'm looking at one of the photographs. The... Uh, uh, orbital maneuvering system has been removed. The engines have been removed. Uh, ditto with Discovery. And um, the reason why they're doing this is they've only really have got two uh, orbiter processing facilities open to them. Uh, I believe one of the uh, OPFs, uh, OPF number three, uh, is... Um, uh, being looked at by a yet unnamed company. Uh, rumor, one rumor has it that it's Boeing. Another rumor has it that it might be Sierra Nevada, and they would be using uh, OPF number three to process. Um, if it's Boeing, they might be using it to process the uh, the CST 100, or if it's Sierra Nevada, they'll obviously be processing the Dream Chaser there. Um, but uh, uh, it, it's not exactly too sure uh, what what the fate of OPF number three is going to be, but but because they only have two orbiter processing facilities, you're going to see a lot of this. Um, whoops, you're going to see a lot of this uh, uh, moving around of the vehicles, and and ditto with Atlantis as it uh, goes ahead and undergoes its uh, its preparation too. So um, you're going to see a lot of these little shuffles. I'll bet you. Um, excuse me, though, these little shuttle shuffles, for lack of a better phrase, um, as uh, as these these ships are are getting prepared for their new roles, and uh, uh, it'll be be interesting to watch um, as uh, you know these historic vessels just kind of run into each other, in not literally, but. Uh, um, it makes for some great dramatic photography, and it makes for some great dramatic memories of uh, of the program. And uh, I hope uh, I hope that uh, you know we we get a little bit out of a little history out of this anyway. It it was still a neat event. And this also ties into a couple of other a uh, couple other interesting uh, things that are going on over over at uh, KSC as well. Apparently, the the state of Florida uh, is going to uh, grant uh, about seven million dollars uh, to SpaceX to um, go ahead and, and help them uh, refit their facility, which is over at Launch Complex 41 at uh, at KSC. Apparently, uh, SpaceX wants to adapt one of the uh, one of the hangars there, so they can process two uh, Falcon nines at once, and not just uh, uh, have the one you know in that uh, hangar. You were in there, there, Sawyer. I think we both were at one point, and uh, um, so that's a, another another thing that's going on over in Florida, and and trying to go ahead and bolster um, some more uh, space jobs out there. So we have the possibility of OPF number three. Becoming the property of a company that uh, 
um, or re- being rented, not becoming property, being rented out to a company um, that will be processing some vehicle in there. And now we have SpaceX wanting to go ahead and uh, asking for an investment of about $7 million in one of their launch facilities as well. So uh, we'll have to just see if this is going to translate to jobs um, out on the Space Coast. And just a little commentary on uh, on government uh involvement on on projects like this where on one hand you think well what in the world is the government doing putting money into facilities and uh, you know customizing you know existing facilities for a new tenant and you know what why why are they doing this and it's something that's fairly common I don't know the details of a lot of this but uh, Gainesville Florida Airport the Airport Authority has uh, Parts of the area around the the perimeter of the airport itself, where warehouse type buildings have been built, uh, hangars in some cases have been built, and they do it with uh, with funding that comes from local authority, from the state of Florida DOT, from federal funds, and they do it to bring business in. They do it to bring in some of the uh, some of the high profile tenants that you'd like to have at your location. To make it stand out as a, uh, in the case of an airport, as a, you know, a, an airport that's got something going on other than, uh, you know, pilot training, you know, you know, maybe some commercial, but also charter, maybe some manufacturing, maybe aircraft repair, uh, and gee, why not space flight? And so it's something that uh, is part of it, and apparently, uh, the. Millions of dollars that uh, is is planned for that is just part of business as usual, where the, the state of Florida wants to promote business in that in that realm for the state of Florida and build our economy. And uh, just another um, case of uh, of getting uh, uh, more money for the space program and so on. Uh, f- I believe uh, Florida Representative Bill Posey is. Uh, is warning or or warned uh, this past week that uh, uh, NASA funding is going to uh, hinge on uh, a clearer NASA vision. Um, his concern, and I'm quoting directly again from a Florida Today article uh, dated August 10, um, and to quote the article, uh, uh, Congressman Posey is saying, absent a clear mission, human spaceflight, I'm afraid, will be ven- very vulnerable, out of sight, out of mind. Um, he is saying that uh, he wants to go ahead and defend the U.S. space effort and wants to make sure it doesn't fall short. Um, but... Uh, is saying that the task is is awfully difficult at this point because NASA is not has not released its plans for the uh, the heavy lift vehicle yet, and uh, um, that uh, Congress wants to be in operation by 2016. This is the infamous Space Launch System or SLS, or as some in in the commercial end of things have called it, the Congressional Launch System or whatever they're calling it. Um, NASA has not yet revealed what it wants to do with that, um, and but although there have been some breadcrumbs running around Sawyer, we've talked a little bit about that here on the show. I think at some point, where one vehicle, one setup has the vehicle being ready actually in 2032. Um, uh, but uh, again, uh, he's saying the uh, Congressman Posey is saying, look, you know, we want to give you the money you need to execute this thing, but you got to show us what what you're doing and what you have planned to do. And so far, we 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 do do not see that. Yeah, I'm pretty sure 2032 set off some flags that said, "Yeah, let's," because they've been threatening for a month to see the documents, and finally, when they announced 2032, they're like, "Yeah, come on, we're going to subpoena you for the documents now." Yeah, do, do, so not for anything. Do you really think that 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 2032 is a legitimate deal, or is it just sort of sticking, you know, sticking sticks in somebody's cage to say, you know, okay, you know, we need more money to go ahead and and get this really, really going by 2016? I don't trust any NASA number in terms of years, to be 100% <laughs> honest with you. I still have the patch. 
that has the space shuttle program 1981 to 2010. I don't trust any NASA years, although 2032 does seem a little extreme. That's when we were talking about getting to Mars, even, was 2030, around then. So I, I'm doubting that. I have a feeling, because originally they said 2016. To go right. from 2016 to 2032, just like that, does not sound right. Well, I think the main argument there was we don't have the money to do that and do it properly. And if we're going to, you know, if, if it's going to be a pay-as-you-go type thing, this is the date that it's going to be ready at. Because we just do not have the funding, the proper funding for it at this time. And I think that's that's the whole, that might have been a scare tactic, I think. Well, it's certainly um, a way to wake everyone up. Yeah, I think so. Um, but whether whether or not NASA has a goal articulated, I mean, there was a article. Article, uh, I guess, in NASA Spaceflight this week about uh, using the next NEMO mission, which I think is going to be happening in uh, October of this year, uh, for using it to uh, to practice um, techniques that you would need to uh, at a uh, near Earth asteroid, and what a what an astronaut might need to to know and need to do at a near Earth asteroid to go ahead and. Make sure that uh, you know that individual remains safe if if he wants he or she needs to uh, needs to you know grab samples from this thing. Because if you remember exactly um, when we talked to Rusty Schweikert all those months ago, he basically said you do not land on an asteroid. You kind of sort of dock with it. So essentially, you, you we're not talking a plant the flag style moment here. We're talking about an astronaut essentially doing a, a spacewalk and grabbing a sample from this thing. So my guess is that's what if that's the goal, that's what they're trying to do. And uh, um, we're, we're started we're starting to see that little infrastructure start to take uh, take some shape. So. But I think that's what NASA has to do. It has to go ahead and say, this is our target. This is what we want to do. And I think that's what Congress wants to see, too, um, saying, all right, if you want to do an asteroid, fine. What do you need to get there with? How do you, how do you plan on getting there? And what's your time frame for getting to a, a near-Earth asteroid? And I think that's what Congress wants to see, and that's what NASA doesn't have right now. And I think that's what the American public wants to see, too. And... Uh, I mean, I know we're talking about you know we're talking about the infamous flexible path and all this, but um, if that's a goal, you know, you know, at, you know, then then set set the date and say, okay, this is where we want to be at this period of time, and and use this as a as a demonstration for a possible Mars shot. And if that's what you want to do, fine, but but set give us the roadmap and how you're going to get there. And I think that's what Congress wants. Got another note to throw in here, talking about uh, the future of, of spaceflight and and you know the whole business of spaceflight. Mm-hmm. Uh, this past week, NASA selected seven firms to provide these near space flight services. And uh, what it is, they selected seven companies to integrate and fly technology payloads on commercial suborbital research platforms. And that's where they can carry payloads to near the boundary of space. And the company selected is Armadillo Aerospace from Heath, Texas, Near Space Corp in Tillamook, Oregon, Maston Space Systems in Mojave, California, UP Up, Aerospace Inc., Highlands Ranch, Colorado, Virgin Galactic, Mojave, California, Whitting Hill Aerospace LLC, Camarillo, California, and XCOR, X-C-O-R, Mojave, California. And uh, this is an announcement from the NASA off the chief technologist. And uh, their whole focus is on maturing some cross-cutting technologies to flight readiness status. And it looks like some money that they've got set aside for this and the companies that are selected will uh, give us some things to talk about in the coming coming years. I think I, I recall, and, and somebody is going to check me on this one, um, NASA saying that Virgin Galactic was going to fly some suborbital stuff for them. I think there was, there was actually a contract out there um, for that. I have to, I'll have to do my homework because uh, I could have sworn I saw something about that. And, 
Um, I might have actually tweeted the article. I just don't remember <laughs> where what I did with it, unfortunately. So I'll have to see if I can dig it around and find out, and I'll confirm. Looks like they would be close from the things that we catch here and there about their test flights. Yeah. All right, we're going to wrap this off with a listener email, which is still actually an acronym for electronic mail. <laughs> anyway. I, I really sense a show title here somewhere. <laughs> uh, this was from Robert Hergenrother, who sent us a message uh, this past Wednesday letting us know that about an event in New York City at the American Museum of Natural History on Tuesday, August 16th, which will unfortunately be after this episode airs. The crew of STS-135 will be at the museum that day giving a talk, and uh, he will not be able to attend, but I hope you can make it to the event. Thank you, Robert, for letting us know that, and there are also a couple other events if you're in the New York City area to give you a chance to meet the STS-135 crew. One of those events is actually at a hotel that is this coming Wednesday, and that is at the Eventi Hotel, which is in New York City. And there will be a roaming NASA event there where you can participate in some interactive activities there, including using Xbox 360 Kinect systems to drive Mars rovers virtually and other interesting items there, as well as a chance to meet the STS-135 crew. And if you can't make it that Wednesday... The same event will be occurring on Thursday, August 18th at the Intrepid Sea, Air, and Space Museum. The crew will be there on the 18th, but the event remains there through Friday, August 19th. So if you're in the New York City area, be sure to check that out and uh, maybe get to meet the historic final crew of the Space Shuttle. Gene, you going to be attending any of these? I will have to see if this pesky day job thing gets in the way, but I'm going to try to go ahead and see see what I can do. How dare you have to you know make a living and work? Yeah, I know. How dare I? I'll have to go ahead and, and see what I can do here, but I, I might be able to squeam and squirm and wangle out of something here. We'll have to see. All right, because I will be at the Intrepid Sierra Space Museum on Thursday, August 18th. Representing myself and Talking Space, so we'll have an update on that next week. Yeehaw, I can't wait. <laughs> I can't wait either for this Thursday. But without any further ado, I know a lot of people want to wait for this episode to end, but unfortunately the time has come to end it. So I'd like to thank everybody for joining us here. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. It was a fun night into acronym land, Sawyer. Thanks a lot for the opportunity here, and um, good night, Oliver. I love you, man. Indeed, and TYVM, thank you very much, Mark Ratterman. I just want to say a, a quick thanks to the folks at Astronomy FM and our listeners through Astronomy FM for having us join their family on a rebroadcast of our show. Here, here. If you didn't know that, you could check the schedule online at astronomy.fm to find out when Talking Space airs, because it has been changing recently, but... We'd like to thank everybody again in Astronomy FM for everything they do for Talking Space. And, of course, we'd like to thank you for listening to us, however you chose to listen to us. And, as always, have a great day, night, evening, whatever it may be, where you are. <laughs>